coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hey, Scully, do you believe in an afterlife? I settled for a life in this one. What's next? Death and the afterlife. Can you, as a person, survive the destruction of your body? But when your body goes, is that the end of you, too? You're dead. This is the afterlife. And I'm God. I am not dead. Because I refuse to believe that the afterlife is run by you. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Is there any reason to believe in the great hereafter? Tonight on Is There, we examine the question, is there a life after death? <laughs> and here to discuss it are three dead people. What's next? Death and the Afterlife. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hey, Josh, you're my favorite Francophile, so you'll appreciate this line from Camus. Real generosity toward the future lies in giving all to the present. That's a great line and really timely. Our future sure could use some help right around now. So what can people do to help us secure our future in the present? Well, how about giving a tax-deductible donation to Philosophy Talk during our end-of-year fundraiser? Uh, yeah, just go to our website, philosophytalk.org, click on the Donate button, and help us keep this program on the air and online now and into the future. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner at Stanford University, where Ken teaches philosophy and I did for 40 years. Today we're asking, what's next? Death and the afterlife. Well, I'll tell you what's next. Nothingness. Oh, John, how can you be so all-fired sure there's no afterlife? Well, I think a better question is why can you be sure or, or even imagine that there might be one? Well, people have believed in the afterlife since, well, since there were people, as far as I can tell. Who am I to say that they were all dead wrong? Well, you're a philosopher. You're supposed to be able to recognize wishful thinking when you see it or hear it. People believe in the afterlife, don't they, because they don't like the idea of themselves dying or even their friends dying. It's a comforting fantasy, Ken. It's nothing more than oh, that. Oh, John, John, not all visions of the afterlife are comforting. Shakespeare's Hamlet, you remember him. He didn't think so. I mean, that to be or not to be speech was all about how even though life is positively dreadful and not choice-worthy, the afterlife is potentially much, much worse. So it's not all comforting. Well, okay, but that's just two sides of the same delusion. Uh, I, I, how, how, why would you say that? Well, heaven is God's carrot. Hell is his stick. Your, your pal Nietzsche said about Jesus he, that Jesus was so hungry for love that he had to invent hell so he could send those who refused to love him there. Heaven is the flip side. It's where you go if you've been a good little soul. Oh, John, okay, look, I, I can see your cynicism and disbelief. If you start out convinced from the beginning that there's no God, there's no soul, there's no cosmic justice, then sure, yeah, the idea of an afterlife is going to seem pretty silly, pretty hopeless, all that. But you got to admit, you just might be wrong. Can't you admit that? Because after all, we do question everything here. Well, what if I am wrong? What then? Are you going to tell me about what this afterlife that I'm wrong about is like? What's the basis for what you're going to say? You've never been there. 
You've never met anybody who's been there. Uh, I grant you that, but it's not. You're trying to make it out a matter of evidence, of present-day evidence. I admit it's not a matter of present-day evidence. Right now, it's a matter of faith, at least while we're still stuck in the here and now. People take it on faith. Yeah, exactly. My point. Case closed. No, no, no. Case not closed. Just because I can't get evidence now doesn't mean I could never get evidence. Look, suppose I, I told you that some really cool things are taking place in some really amazing but far-off place, and you and I are missing out on all the fun, and you've got no basis for denying the very existence of this cool place just because it's not next door, it's not in our neighborhood, it's not part of the here and now. Yeah, but I I certainly have no basis for believing it either. Well, okay, so maybe you should just be an agnostic about it. Okay, I'll be an agnostic. Happy? Yeah, well, okay, because, look, suppose I decide I'm going to find out the truth about this place for myself. I'm going to set out on my own to search for this really cool place. What do you think about that? Good luck with that. (laughs) Well, are you willing to follow me? No way, fat chance. Forget Uh, about it. Come on, wouldn't you even be the least bit curious? Wouldn't you want to know if I actually found it? And wouldn't you want to know what it's really like if it's actually there? Wouldn't you want to know that? Well, sure, if you make it to this distant uh, heavenly Epcot Center that (laughs) that you've heard advertised. Uh, send me a postcard for for goodness sakes, or 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 come back and tell me all about it. Be glad to listen and learn. Okay, so now I've at least got your curiosity piqued about this place, but I got some bad news for you. Now that your curiosity's aroused, it's it's a one way trip, and if you really want to know, you've got to make the journey all by yourself. Well, that's a bit of a bummer. Not willing to risk it, huh? What are you afraid, cowardly? No, I'm not afraid. I just I'm not interested in this pie in the sky, a waste of time or energy. You know, John, you started out trying to say saying that the belief in the afterlife is, is is something for cowards. It's little more than a comforting fantasy of those who don't have the courage to face the truth. But you know what? I hear you changing your tune. You may not realize it, but you're now suggesting exactly the opposite. Well, I don't quite see how. Well, because, look, people who believe in the afterlife are like people who knowingly set out on a journey to a distant land that they know just might not exist Cowards don't do that sort of thing, John. Only people with the courage to take a leap of faith into the unknown do that. There's nothing comforting about that. I get it, Ken. You're channeling your inner Kierkegaard. When my inner Kierkegaard beckons, I take an antacid. I didn't say it was about cowardice as opposed to courage. After all, everyone's going to make this journey one way or another when they die or not make it. I said about it's about what's reasonable to expect and what's unreasonable to expect. I'm not even convinced that that's right, John, because, look, there have been so many different visions of what the afterlife might be like throughout human history. Why, why deny that some of those visions might actually be more reasonable and more persuasive than other of those visions? Well, how about we put that proposition to the test? <laughs> how do you suggest we do that? You want us to die right here in the radio? Uh, well, we we may have already done that, but <laughs> like we always do, by sending our roving philosophical reporter, Shuka Kalantari, out into the fields. This time, the Elysian Fields, where she explores the many different visions that have been offered of heaven, hell, and points in between. She files this report. It has come to be. The four horsemen are drawing nigh. The time of prophecy is upon us. I love when you get all biblical, Satan. You know exactly how to turn my crank. Before Satan ever came along, there was Hades, Zeus's outcast brother. And he wasn't the nicest guy. He ran the underworld, but thought the dead were dull and uncouth. 
He was as mean as he was ruthless, and that's the gospel truth. In early Greek mythology, it didn't matter if you were a sinner or a saint. Everybody kicked it with Hades in the underworld after they died. And to make matters worse, Hades had a three-headed dog guarding the gates of hell, so you couldn't get out. It wasn't until later in Greek lore that the idea of a separate heaven and hell emerged. At first, heaven was only a place for the sons of gods and warriors killed during battle. In the early Greek version of heaven, warriors battle all day without dying and drink wine all night without getting hungover. Much more fun than Hades, and not a bad military recruiting tool. Plato's myth of air introduced the idea that all good souls go to heaven, not just soldiers. Today, most religions believe in some kind of a heaven. The Bible says it's always sunny in heaven. There's no death, sadness, crying, or pain of any kind. In the Muslim heaven, there's rivers of milk and wine. In Judaism, like Greek mythology, there was originally only one bleak afterlife for everybody, called Sheol. The Judaic idea of heaven emerged later as Gan Eden, like the Garden of Eden, except for dead people. Then around 400 BC, the idea of heaven became firmly rooted, and so did the idea of hell. What the f According to the book of Revelations in the Bible, hell has a big lake of fire. And according to Woody Allen in Deconstructing Harry, the only way to get there is on a freight elevator. Floor 8. Escaped war criminals, TV evangelists, and the NRA. Lowest level, everybody off. The Islamic Jahannam is similar to the fiery Catholic hell, except in Jahannam, there's seven gates leading to seven different levels of hell each one worse than the last. But before you go to heaven or hell, there's purgatory. Good afternoon and welcome to Judgment City. In some Jewish beliefs, sinful souls go to Gehenna or hell, where they, quote, float up and down until they rise purified. Islam's variation is called Barzakh, a space between the physical and spiritual world where naughty souls hang out until Judgment Day. Then there's Catholics. They don't consider purgatory a place, but rather a process of purification. Either way, a lot of souls go through purgatory. Unless they're dogs. Where am I? This is the Great Hall of Judgment. Judgment? Oh, not to worry, Charlie. You'll go to heaven. All dogs go to heaven because unlike people, dogs are naturally good and loyal and kind. Huh. Yeah, that's true. For us people, most religions have a good afterlife and a bad afterlife. Heaven may be an island full of drunk Greek warriors or a meadow with flowing rivers of milk. But almost everyone agrees, you gotta do good in this life to avoid the fiery pits of hell in the next. So just to be safe, maybe you should call your mom tonight. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shuka Kalantari. Thanks, Shuka Kalantari, for that tutorial on heaven and hell from ancient Greece to Woody Allen. Very informative. I don't know that there's much less for us to discuss, but at any rate, I'm John Perry, and with me is my fellow Stanford philosopher, Ken Taylor. Today, we're thinking about Death and the Afterlife, a show we're calling What's Next? And what's next on the radio right now is Richard Swinburne. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Oxford. He's author of Mind, Brain, and Free Will. Richard, welcome back to Philosophy Talk. Thank you very much. So, so Richard, <clears throat> any of us who, who've read your articles and books know you're a believing Christian, and belief in the afterlife comes with that turf. 
But yes. were there ever times when you positively weren't sure or even were pretty sure there wasn't an afterlife, or was it always just kind of obvious? Um, uh, there were no times when I was sure there was no afterlife. Uh, I've usually been con fairly well convinced that there's an afterlife, and I am now. And my reasons are that it's part of the Christian religion, and I think there are independent reasons for believing that to be a true religion. Well, before we get into the to the substantive philosophical pluses and minuses for the belief, uh, let me ask you a question on something that neither of us is expert, but you you know you I'm sure you have an educated opinion. Uh, why is the belief in the afterlife so prevalent, not just among believing Christians, but among all sorts of people throughout history? Yes, you may call it wishful thinking. That That's one hypothesis. But I think people are inclined to think, well, if there wasn't an afterlife, what happens in this life would be so insignificant that it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter if people did right or wrong or suffered or didn't suffer because in the eternity, eternity is so long and this life so short that it wouldn't have any significance. I think there's a lot of that feeling around, and a lot of feeling around that the good we do in this life ought in some way to be rewarded, and the bad we do ought in some way to be punished. So you think that at the core of the belief in the afterlife is... I mean, there, there are religious doctrines, but what underlies that is some kind of human demand, maybe Nietzsche would call it all too human demand, for an affirmation of the significance of our, of our being and doing in the world. Without, without the afterlife, we can't affirm to ourselves the, the significance of our lives. You know, the existentialists think that's a big, bad mistake, right? But uh, I think it's a big, bad mistake, too. But I was giving you what mm. I take to be implicit yes. in quite mm. a number of people's thinking, and indeed in the f thinking of the philosopher Immanuel Kant, who said that we must believe in the afterlife because otherwise uh, virtue would not be compensated, would not be rewarded, and sin would not be punished. Um, I think that's a great mistake to believe in the afterlife on those grounds because the point of helping the, the poor is because they're poor. And the point of telling the truth is because it's true. And we don't need rewards or punishment for that to make sense of it, that being well, the case. I, I'd have to agree with you on that one. I think Kant not only believed in, in, in this argument for the afterlife, but he thought that was the most convincing argument for God, that there had to be a God around to make sure that the all this cosmic injustice wouldn't wouldn't be there. I don't know if I'm right about that, because my knowledge of dead his dead dead great philosophers <laughs> I don't agree with is fairly shaky. But I think he did think that, and I think he was wrong. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll have to dig more deeply into these things. I, I'm, I'm pleased to find a point of agreement between uh, you and John at the top of this show. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about the afterlife with Richard Swinburne from the University of Oxford. In our next segment, we're going to ask how you would exist, what life would be like, or what death would be like, or whatever, whatever would be like if you did manage to survive your death. Would you live on as a ghostly, disembodied spirit or maybe an angel on a cloud playing, playing a, a ukulele uh, or a harp? Would you, would you have the body you died with or a better body, a more perfect body perhaps than you ever had? Kind of maybe the wisdom of old age and the testosterone of the teenage years? And what about your soul? Would it somehow be improved in death? Or tormented, and would it share memories of earthly life? The after effects of the afterlife, plus your calls and emails 
when Philosophy Talk continues. You got to fill out a form first, and then you wait in the line. You got to fill out a form first, and then you wait in the line. Paul Simon's vision of the afterlife. A little like applying for Social Security. You fill out a form first, and then you wait in line. This doesn't sound much like heaven to me. I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. We're asking, what's next? What kind of life, if any, comes after death? Could your disembodied soul really be identical to you? What would it mean for you to, sur to survive as you in the great hereafter? Our guest is Richard Swinburne from the University of Oxford. He's the author of Mind, Brain, and Free Will. So, Richard, uh, Christianity <clears throat> believes in personal survival after death, survival as the very same person. Yes. I'm always a little bit puzzled about what that, how that's really possible. When I die, not just my body but also my memories, which are housed in my brain, my imperfect psychological makeup and character all die with me. I, I'm not sure what would be left after death to, to survive as me. Can you, can you help me with that? Uh, my soul would survive, and that is the essential part of me. And I think there are very good philosophical arguments for the view that each human consists of body and soul, of which the... Uh, soul is the essential part, that is to say, it's got to be the part that you have in order to continue to survive. Um, my arguments for that are very simple. Um, suppose it were the case that you were the same as your body, you were just your body. Then, if we knew everything that had happened to the body, we would know what had happened to you. And, well, what happens to the body if we knew what was going on in the brain? But, of course, connected with the brain, there are thoughts and feelings. But now suppose that you knew with respect to each body, uh, not merely what were the physical things going on, but what were the thoughts and feelings they were having, you still wouldn't know what would happen to you, because consider this experiment. It often used to be called a thought experiment, but one day, alas, perhaps it will be done. Suppose... You get hold of me, and you get hold, or a mad surgeon gets hold of me, and he gets hold of my identical twin at the same time, and he says, I'm going to remove half your brain, the left hemisphere, let's say, and uh, put it in the uh, brain of my identical twin, and you're going to take my identical twin's left hemisphere and put it into me. Now, the resulting persons, uh, assuming that the wires, that is to say, the, the nerves are connected up again, uh, um, would uh, be, have brains partly derived from the original person and partly derived from the other person. And therefore they would probably both claim to have been the person that had that body. Uh, but uh, uh, they, uh, or they might not. They, they, each of them would claim to be uh, the other person or sometimes claim to be uh, the person who's, uh, who had the same feet. Um, but they can't. Uh, so which would be me? Would so, it be the one who has my left hemisphere or the one who has my right hemisphere? And the answer is we wouldn't know, even if we knew everything that was happening in their brains and all the thoughts and feelings which the resulting person had. So, so Richard, Richard, that's a pretty complicated argument, and, and we'll have to go through it, I think, slowly, but it's worthwhile because it's an interesting one. But I want to go right back to the beginning and just ask you a question. What's the relation between the soul and 
the mind? I mean, are they the same, or is the soul something that makes the mind possible? Uh, well, the or, word or, or, mind is used in a very vague way in ordinary language. I think it's probably best avoided. Um, the soul, as I was using this term, is an immaterial, as I say, not extended, part of me. And it has properties. It has the properties, uh, the mental properties. It has the thoughts and feelings which belong to me, and they are in interaction with my brain. So, Richard, Richard, then, okay, look, I don't believe in the soul in your sense. I do believe in the mind, but I think the mind is just, as it were, the software of the brain, and there can't be a mind without a brain running it, because there can't be software just autonomously running without it being embodied in something. So, if I, I take... I don't take your proof to be a proof that the soul exists, but I don't want to really get into that. But I take it is a proof. No, I know, I know. I I said I don't take it to be a proof that the soul exists. I know you purport it to be such, right? I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to get I think into. We th ought to let the, the the listeners just finish my my uh, demonstration of this. My demonstration consisted in the fact that if you swap hemispheres and t both of two people, therefore, will have half of my brain, and they may well both claim to be me. And if you knew everything about their thoughts and feelings and everything about what's going on in the brain, you wouldn't know the answer. So there must be something that makes me me, which is other than the physical, because you know everything. So, 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 Richard, I, I think I understand your argument, and I do take it to be an argument that, if valid, would show that there was a soul. But I just I, I want to make sure that, that, that there's a little bit of um, finesse that I want to make sure our listeners get. And that's the idea that we're talking about identity. And so yeah, just one yeah. thing, if A is equal to B and B is equal to C, then A is equal to C. Yes, so, so Richard... Richard's idea is we end up with, with two bodies that have an equal claim. Uh, the persons who are, who are speaking with those bodies have an equal claim on being me. Because they both result from a causal process that if the other one hadn't happened, it would clearly be me. Because uh, people can have hemispherectomies, right? If you remove my right hemisphere, uh, I can live on with just my left hemisphere. If you remove my left hemisphere, well, I can live on with just my right hemisphere. Well, right hemisphere. Yeah. Uh, well, no, I mean, <coughs> I, I don't know. I, I mean, we have people going around that have had these hemispherectomies, and we, 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 no one seems to have any doubt that they are who they claim to be. But now suppose we do both things. Suppose oh. for some reason there's a spare body available, and one or the other of my hemispheres is used to to supply a brain for that. Now, now Richard's point is, physically, these two bodies uh, have an equal claim on being me, but there must be some answer to the question, which is really me. So there must be some fact of the matter that yeah. isn't just a physical fact. Do I have the argument right? That's right. But that's that. That's that. That might. Uh, I don't really want to go into that argument. This is about personal identity and all this sort of stuff. It just. I don't see how it begins to prove the existence of a soul. But, but and we can get into that. But I just wanted to grant. I just wanted to say something that you're you're kind of saying that if there is no soul, then life after death makes no sense. That a prerequisite for believing that there is the possibility of life after death is believing that there is such a soul. And you've got an argument that there is such yeah. a thing, so that you. Can yeah. permit yourself to believe that. I think there is no such thing, so I can't permit myself to believe that. But I want to let some callers in here. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about what's next. Oh, I'd love to have you uh, be a part of this conversation. John from Richmond's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, John. 
Well, thank you. I uh, appreciate being able to uh, share my thoughts with you. Uh, <laughs> basically, what uh, I've been hearing so far to me is uh, simply a lot of conjecture, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, mental machinations trying to figure something out. And I'm wondering about uh, why we're not considering uh, instead the evidence that's presented by literally many thousands of people that have had near-death experiences. Uh, basically, they're talking about uh, their direct experience being that, yes, there is life after death. Uh, and, uh, of course, what they have to tell us is not a proof, but it's a heck of a lot of evidence. And what they say is that first they found themselves leaving their body. Uh, most were uh, greeted by loved ones, uh, friends, family members who had already gone on to the other side ahead of them, and it's a wonderful, loving, joyful reunion. Uh, they say they do have a body on the other side, uh, but it's not a heavy, dense uh, physical John. body like we have here. It's a very ethereal, John. Uh, ethereal body. John, here's my question for you. Okay, I know that there are these people who report these uh, experiences. Uh, I have no idea what to make of those experiences. I have no idea what, whether those experiences are veridical, that is, tracking the truth, or non-veridical. Do you have any basis for believing that those experiences aren't just the brain? The brain is an inveterate interpreter of, of itself, of, thing, of when things happen. Do you have any basis for believing that those are veridical, that is, truth-tracking experiences, rather than something the brain throws up in some massive state of trauma? I mean, well, well, you know, so I don't know if that Absolutely. shows anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, a very easy way to look into this is there's an organization called uh, IONS, which is an acronym that refers to the International Association for Near-Death Studies. And if you go to IONS.org, uh, you can access any number of these okay. accounts, but also you can access the research that is connected to this. Okay, John, I'm going to thank you for the comment. I'm going to let Richard uh, respond to this. Uh, uh, what do you think about this, Richard? Um, I don't think it's very strong evidence, uh, but I think it is a bit of evidence. If uh, somebody reports some experience, we, uh, uh, the question arises whether they're imagining it or not. And if it's the kind of experience other people have, that's some good reason for believing it occurs. But on the other hand, uh, we would want a certain coincidence, that is to say, not merely the same kind of experience, but we would want two people on the same hospital, in the same hospital, for example, each of whom were having near-death experiences, and each of which ha uh, visualized exactly the same scene. That, that would uh, convince one, as it would convince one uh, with respect to any explorer, if they've been to a strange country and someone else has also been and reports the same trees and so on there, then that's pretty strong evidence. But I, my assessment of the evidence is that you don't on the whole get exact coincidence of reports. They're all a bit vague, but I may be wrong about that. Well, so Richard, there's another point of agreement between us. That's about what I would think about these. But I want to go back to your argument. Unlike Unlike our, our listener, I find it a quite a fascinating argument, but I want to tie it more closely into our topic here. Now, I, I assume that on your view, for me to be in heaven is for there to be in heaven a soul, which is me, my soul. 
the yes, one that, that animated my body when I was on Earth. It, it is. It is me. It is the essential yeah, part. It of is me, the essential it? part of me. Now God creates souls. Is that yes. fair? Yep. Now here's uh, here's. I mean, being a, a bit impious, I'll put this in the first person. I'm God. Uh, <laughs> I've got this guy, Ken Taylor. Uh, he's uh, he's coming to the end of his life. Now I can I can just transport his soul to heaven, or I can transport his soul to hell. Let's assume. Uh, but isn't a third option to create new souls in heaven and hell? that have all exactly the same memories that Ken Taylor has. Now, they wouldn't actually be him, but what's the point of moving the real soul to heaven? And wouldn't we say, maybe, or, or suppose God created two souls in heaven that each had the memories and experiences, that is, the putative memories of, of Ken Taylor. How could anyone tell the difference? So. So, well, uh, that's why, the reason why, for supposing that God won't do it. <laughs> but how do you know God wouldn't do it? Because God is a good God and not going to deceive us on such well, a but wait, but, but wait a minute, Richard. I mean, you've written a lot about the problem of evil. You're not one who thinks you can plumb in God's intentions and know every detail. He might have all kinds of reasons for doing that that you don't know about. Well, that is possible, and it's all po there are all kinds of reasons for all kinds of philosophical positions that we don't know about, but we must go on the ones we do, and the ones we do suggest that a good and omnipotent being isn't going to do a lot of systematic deceiving well, on ways we can't uh, sort out. But, Richard, uh, given that you said that, i actually starting to think about this topic and this show. i actually puzzled by something. Okay, I know people who believe in the afterlife believe in an immortal soul. Uh, I guess God could destroy it, but it does not yes. going to be destroyed by sort of natural processes or something like that. Death doesn't destroy it. Okay, and this immortal soul is housed in or somehow associated with a, a body, yep. right? And the body is going to disappear after death. Now, yep. and, and life on this earth is kind of a veil of tears and suffering and all that. Why the oh, devil... Well. Or can be anyway. Why the devil did the good, loving, all omnipotent God bother with this? What Plato called the mess of mortality in the first place. I mean, it doesn't make any sense that he would let us die. I mean, either dying is just an illusion, right? Or it's just like the separation from the body, and you get the great good thing, union with God. Union. Well, why didn't he just give us the union with God with this immortal soul that doesn't really belong here? I don't get it. I mean, because he wishes to give us the choice of whether we want that union or not. We have in this world uh, the choice between doing good actions and doing bad actions. And it's rather difficult sometimes to do good actions. But if we really persist, we gradually form a good character. Likewise, if we give in to bad inclinations, we gradually form a bad character. And heaven, I think, should be regarded not primarily as a reward for good actions, but as a home for good people. And by our actions on earth, we make ourselves suitable for heaven. And it's a great advantage that we have a choice of the kind of person we are to be and the kind of future we, we have. And that's why God puts a lot of souls on earth and collects them to their bodies. They are blessed in that way. But... Uh, of course, uh, he may well create all sorts of souls just in heaven. Uh, I don't want to rule that out. So, so R Richard, it seems to me that the logic of your argument, really, I mean, I, I, I like your original argument. I mean, uh, uh, 
I think it poses very interesting questions. But basically, uh, that argument depends on our sense as we go from moment to moment and day to day that there's a kind of identity uh, that we have that isn't just bodily identity because we can imagine. Yes, indeed. We can Im- now. Then you need the then you need the idea that God isn't a deceiver, so that we suppose that that kind of identity can be used in philosophical arguments like the one you gave yeah. uh, to argue that there's a real question. It's this question of God not being a deceiver, that a good God wouldn't be a deceiving God. That's not so obvious to me. I mean, for, for, for thousands of years, people were deceived by the way the sun seems to come up and set into thinking that the world was a very special place. I think that's a very friendly way for God to deceive us. I wish he'd done a better job deceiving us. I have no uh, interest at all in his ancient spec, in, in, in this huge that, universe that physicists are so fond of. De- that's not deceiving. If you let your pupils uh, form some uh, b- wrong ideas on the basis of the evidence and so on, uh, you think it's good for them to be able to sort things out for themselves. And uh, you haven't deceived them. You just let them form their ideas on the basis of the evidence. Deceiving is actually t- t- putting people in a position where they can't find out anything on the basis spoke, of the evidence. Spoke, spoken like Descartes, Richard. We'll have to t- take some more of these things up after the break. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about life after death with Richard Swinburne from the University of Oxford. In our final segment, oh. we'll ask whether a scientifically-minded, rational person in the 21st century can have a good-faith belief in the afterlife. The afterlife, scientific rationality, when Philosophy Talk continues. When the saints go marching in. Marching in. Yes, I want to be in that number. When the saints go marching in. <laughs> You want to be in that number? This is the episode called What's Next? Death and the Afterlife. I'm John Perry. You're tuned to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Richard Swinburne from University of Oxford, author of Mind, Brain, and Free Will. And you want to push Richard some more, I gather. Yeah, Richard, let's just continue our conversation, which takes off from your very interesting argument. Uh, I said that... uh, it's not so obvious that uh, God, a good God isn't a deceiving God because uh, uh, he happily deceived us that the earth was the center of existence for thousands of years. And you said that wasn't really deception because we had. he also gave us the tools to realize the truth, which we eventually did. But suppose somebody came back at you with this argument. Uh, <laughs> I'll make it personal. We'll take, your, uh, we'll take your Oxford colleague or at least sometime Oxford colleague, Derek Parfit. So suppose we tell a history of the intellect like this. For a long time, people believed the Earth was the center of the world, and then there was Copernicus and Galileo and Newton, and they, people we realized were just a very small part of a huge universe. And for thousands of years, people believed there was some kind of special identity that was the basis of care and concern. But then Derek Parfit came along and showed us, no, there's just a series of episodes of consciousness held together by memory and intention that doesn't give us a more perfect identity and doesn't depend on a soul. Uh, And uh, just as we were unhappy at first at finding that the earth wasn't the center of things, uh, we were unhappy at first at finding that uh, individual enduring souls weren't the basis of all mental life. But we'll get used to it. What what would you say to that? Maybe maybe Derek Parfit has put this to you already. I don't know. Well, uh, there's a qualitative difference between the two bits of information. 
the second bit of information is very relevant to our well to everything we do um, because it means that we are the person who did these actions years ago and we are responsible for them and if they're bad we're guilty and if they're good we're praiseworthy it's very important to think that personal identity consists in something other than the brain. It also affects, of course, our belief about the afterlife, and it's important that uh, we should have some conception of that. Uh, but uh, whether the Earth is the centre of the universe doesn't make a great difference to whether there's a God or not. In fact, it doesn't make any difference at all or any difference to anything uh, that, that really affects personal life. And um, uh, on the other hand, science, the progress of science is a great thing. I'm all in favor of it. And uh, God has given us the tools to sort out these uh, the, how the physical world works, and that's great. But um, whatever view you t take about it doesn't alter, doesn't make any difference between love and hate and uh, guilt and praise. But, but Richard, uh, science hasn't just shown us strange things about the size of the universe. Lots of physicists are telling us that our very basic ideas of the future, the present, and the past are really oversimple. Uh, or perhaps even confused. Now, the the difference between the past, the present, and future is something that's as basic to our way of life as the idea of an enduring self may be more basic. Yeah, so isn't there a possibility that we could learn that our idea of an enduring self was at least much oversimplified, well, like our idea of the present and the past? I want to intervene well, here because I think we can learn, and I think we have learned, and I've got a wonderful paper that I'm going to send you someday, Richard, called The Self of Self-Representation, <laughs> which explodes your, your argument for the existence of a soul. But I want to let a caller in here, uh, Dorothy from San Francisco, on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, uh, Dorothy. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I've noticed that throughout this whole discussion, you've limited yourself to um, the Abrahamic religions. And um, I was kind of hoping that uh, some of the Eastern thought on the afterlife would come in. Well, um, Dorothy, I'll, I'll let you know that this is, show is part of a whole series of shows on immortality and all that, and oh. we are actually going to devote a whole show to Eastern conceptions of survival after death oh, because they're very know. complicated, and we, can't, we couldn't possibly do full justice in, in, in one show to this. So we're po you're right, we are focusing on the Abrahamic religions and their conception of the afterlife, but I'll give Richard a chance to comment very briefly on, on Eastern conceptions of... Well, I don't know if the word Eastern is quite right. Yeah. If we're talking about Buddhist conceptions, right. um, then this is the view that there is no enduring soul. And uh, Derek Parfit, whom you mentioned earlier, uh, approves of the Buddhist uh, view. I think the Buddhist view is wrong on philosophical grounds, which we have stated. It's also committed to the doctrine of karma. That is to say that our suffering in this present life is due to our uh, sins in the previous life. And again, I see absolutely no evidence for this. Um, it's, it's, that, that is just t taken on an unjustified faith, whereas I happen to think the Christian faith is a justified faith. So I want to ask you another thing about the Christian faith. In the afterlife, there is a permanent separation uh, according to Christianity, of the good souls and the not-so-good souls. And uh, I can't quite see how a loving God... I know, when I was at Notre Dame, we read the Divine Comedy, and the gates of hell, it says all bunch of things, but it says this place was forged by divine love rather than... Uh, 
divine wrath or something like that. And my teacher said, well, the point is God wants you to choose. He loves you so much that if you choose eternal damnation, he'll say, okay, you're welcome. I, you are so autonomous. And that just never made any sense to me whatsoever. He gives you 70 years to get your bona fides. And on the basis of that 70 no, wait years. Wait a minute. 70 years? That's all I had? I'm two, I'm two years overdue here? <laughs> or something. He gives you a number of years to establish your bona fides, and then you get eternity in, in hell? For, for well, I, I think uh, Christian religion has also generally admitted that there are plenty of people around who haven't formed a character very uh, definitely uh, in the course of this life. Saints have made themselves fitted for heaven, and no doubt some terrible people have made themselves fitted for hell. But uh, many people aren't in that situation. They haven't heard the gospel. They haven't taken right. it seriously, okay. yeah, etc., yeah. etc. Um, but well, I don't want to talk uh, about those. I want to talk about the 70 years to establish that my character is worthless enough that I should suffer to eternity. Well, um, remember Aquinas said that if anyone were in hell, who was in hell were to repent, he would straightway go to heaven. Uh, Aquinas didn't think anyone would because they had formed their character. Uh, now, uh, the sort of pe- people that I think one is thinking of are those who really like cruelty and enjoy cruelty and so on, and who gradually eliminated any moral views at all, so that, as it were, they don't have a moral sense anymore. Now, what will God do with that person? Uh, Would he give them a moral sense anew? No, because that's what they had chosen deliberately over many years not to have. That's like not giving your child a second chance. You like the the analogy between parent and child. There are uh, second chances. He's given us uh, 70 70 years worth of chances, (laughs) but it's not a matter of chances, you see. Um, If the person at the end of life were open to moral considerations, then he hasn't finally formed an evil will. Um, The question is whether God would impose a character on him, and I think he would not. The question is then, of course, what he would do with them. Now, if if you're just like, uh, if you'll get your enjoyment out of torturing people and that, I think you would be very unhappy in virtue of that fact. Uh, but even if you weren't, God's not going to give you plenty of but, victims to torture, and so you'd be unhappy because you wouldn't be able to fulfill that. But, but Richard, I don't. There is a traditional answer to Ken's worry, which is purgatory, which to me makes yes, the whole heaven and hell that. system more rational. But it's yep, never been was, clear to me whether believing Christians tended to believe in purgatory or that's just Dante. Isn't it a, uh, isn't that a yeah, Catholic-Protestant uh, divide? Uh, well, uh, historically, yes. Yeah. But um, uh, I belong to the Orthodox Church, actually. Um, and uh, the Orthodox view uh, is that <laughs> we don't know quite what happens to people in the intermediate state, but we pray for them. Um, the Catholic view is that if you're in purgatory, you're on the route to heaven, as right. it were. Um, you can't possibly lose out. Um well, maybe uh, I'm uh, somewhat agnostic about the uh, fate of the, the intermediate state, and I think the intermediate state's a very big state because well, I don't think very see, many people are see, saints or very many people are evil. But so, so, the, so, so, Richard, so here's the thing that gets me. So God, on all these ways of thinking about it, God has such a fetish for freedom, such a fetish for freedom, that he's, a, he's willing to allow us to muck up his creation. 
right? Yep. Because we have this free choice. And then he's got to make all these compensating adjustments to get the thing to work out by his plan. And then he's willing to, cond- on the basis of 70 years plus of, um, you know, an experiment, condemn us all to, condemn some of us to eternal. That's it. That, I, I, I don't that's love that guy. I'm sure you think that. Yeah. God gives people what they choose to have. And if they choose to have a moral, an evil moral character, God allows them to go on having it. But I don't think anybody who goes on having it is going to be very happy. I mean, you know, he's got nobody to love, and how can you possibly be happy if you've got nobody to love and nobody to torture either? He gives people (laughs) what they choose, and that, I think, is a great benefit for anyone. Well, God has a good spokesman in in you, uh, uh, Richard. Here's an email from Carl. He says, great show, guys. Thanks, Carl. I understand Professor Swinburne's arguments read his dualism supporting the idea of an afterlife, but I was curious if you guys are aware of any materialist arguments for an afterlife, e.g. some sort of transfer of matter and energy into a persistent pattern that survives what we understand as death. Can you answer that in like 30 seconds, Richard? (laughs) Uh, There have been a few Christian philosophers of late who have... uh, hypothesize that at death in somehow or other our body divides into two and one of these bodies is in the fourth dimension and it's that that continues to exist. I can't see any reason for believing that, whereas I think there are very strong reasons for believing in a soul, so I don't pursue that line. Well, uh, Richard, I'm going to thank you for joining us. It's been, shall I say, a transcendent conversation. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me. Our guest has been Richard Swinburne. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Oxford. He's author of Mind, Brain, and Free Will. So, John, what are, you th- what are your thoughts about the afterlife? Today? Well, you know, there's all these apocryphal texts that didn't make it into the Bible, and in one of them, God says to Moses, Moses, you humans are really charming, but you go through a difficult phase between 2 and 80. <laughs> right. I have to figure out what to do about that. <laughs> yeah. So I've always wished that made it into the Bible. Yeah, right. I, that, would have, that would have been a nice addition. I, I, I think that this whole thing puzzles me. I can't quite figure out why God invented mortality when the soul is infinite. Why exile it in the realm of mortality? It makes no sense to me. To test the character? He could test the character in heaven. But you know what? This conversation continues at Philosopher's Corner at our online community of thinkers where our motto is cogito ergo blago. I think, therefore I blog. And you too, you too can become a partner in this community by visiting our webpage philosophytalk.org. Now, what's next? Not what's next in the grand scheme of things, but what's next on Philosophy Talk. Well, it's a guy speed-talking his way into the future and even the afterlife. It's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, there's always been a bit of tension between the pious side of America and the rowdy side. Of course, sometimes those two are on the same side. Blues and gospel are often the same song with very different lyrics. Somebody might go out and have a wild time on Saturday night, wake up hungover and repentant on a Sunday. And, of course, the most successful preachers are also the most charismatic. And if they happen to fall, like Amy Semple McPherson or Ted Haggard or Jimmy Swaggart, there's an unseemly glee from the secular, even from believers. Americans are kind of nasty, even the godly ones. There's an overlap in the afterlife among believers and unbelievers. Even if we don't believe angels exist, it doesn't stop them from being all over the culture. Angels come to earth to test Jimmy Stewart or help Warren Beatty buy a football team, get amnesia, and marry Julie Christie. There are also many movies about demons coming back to earth and Christopher Walken or Johnny Depp doing battle with them. None of this is very religious, I don't think. 
In cartoons, whenever a villain was killed by an anvil falling on his head or whatever, he was shown suddenly wearing a robe, strumming a harp, and ascending skywards, presumably to heaven, which lay just beyond the cartoon cumulus in the blue air. If the killed critter was a cat, there'd be a number on the robe to indicate how many of its nine lives the cat had left. Thus do cartoons make sport of death itself. Of course, in the next cartoon, all of the dead animals would live again, none the worse for wear, and apparently with no memory of having been dead, just one cartoon before. Blasphemy, I guess. Even the most atheist among us have heard hundreds of jokes about God and the devil and St. Peter and the pearly gates without questioning the veracity of these japeries one whit. In the secular view of heaven and hell, good and evil don't always enter in. Remembering some of the jokes I've heard over the years, for instance, there's one in which Bill Gates approaches the pearly gates and is sent to hell by St. Peter because Windows crashes a lot. That's vaguely sinful, I guess, but there's another one in which President George W. Bush doesn't know who Picasso and Einstein are, which proves he is George W. Bush and can therefore enter heaven. There's a logic there somewhere. In jokes, preachers often don't make it into heaven. There are jokes where one religious group gets in, but must be quiet because another religious group thinks they're the only ones there. Sometimes St. Peter gives people at the pearly gates a test, and often it's a Catholic, a Hindu, and a Jew, or a teacher, a doctor, and a lawyer. Basically, the same people who walk into a bar. Only in this case, one of them gets into heaven instead of getting a cocktail. Would you get into heaven? Well, do you remember the jokes? Some punchlines from heaven to test you. One, father? Pinocchio? Two, oh, about 30 seconds ago. Three, well, Mother Teresa, for two people, it just doesn't pay to cook. Four, Cindy Crawford, you have sinned. Five, try to find a lawyer up here. Six, Jesus, your taxi's here. Seven, they're carols. Eight, why do you have pavement on your briefcase? Nine, no, that's God. He just thinks he's Bono. Ten, finally, what, St. Peter asked of the three recently deceased men standing before him, would you like people to say at your funeral? He was a good man. Okay. He was a kind man. Sure. Look, he's moving. There you go. I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2015. Our executive producer is David Demarest. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Our marketing director is Dave Millar. Thanks also to Ted Muldoon, Merle Kessler, Erica Topit, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and the partners at our online community of thinkers. And from the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. Now if you'll excuse me, I'm dead. What's it like? Uh, what's it like? Uh, you know the chicken at Tresky's restaurant? Yeah. It's worse. <laughs> <laughs>